Let's do a brief exercise together. I'm not going to ask you to stand and do jumping jacks, a different type of exercise. All you'll need is something to write with and a piece of paper, or you can use your worship guide. Or if you're more tech savvy and you want to use your notepad feature on your cell phone to jot down some things, you can do that as well. Whatever works best for you. I'm going to begin the sentence with the statement, when I am, dot, dot, dot. And then you write down how you would finish the rest of the statement. So don't overthink this. If you get confused and get a migraine over this, it is totally going to fall flat. Just write down what first comes to your mind. When life is going just as I want it to go, I do what? When life is going just as I want it to go, I do what? Second question, when life isn't going just as I want it to go, I do what? When life isn't going just as I want it to go, I do what? Third question. When someone has hurt me with their words and I see them again in person, I tend to do what? When someone has hurt me with their words and I see them again in person, I tend to do what? Hopefully, you've got your answers now. Now, I want you to answer these two questions. When I cry out to God in prayer, I believe the Lord does what about it? When I cry out to God in prayer, I believe the Lord does what about it? Last question. When I'm weighed down with burdens in my life, does my attitude reflect that the Lord is for me or against me, near me or far away from me? When the burdens of my life are weighing me down, does my attitude reflect that the Lord is for me or against me, near me or far away from me? You see, brothers and sisters, I would imagine that many of us are quick and relatively confident on how we would answer the first set of questions, those questions about ourselves. But in the thick of the moment, when our lives are backed up against the wall or maybe even our backs are against the ground and we don't think we're going to be able to get up again. I bet all of us, for the most part, can be slow, hesitant, and unsure of how we respond to the latter set of questions, those questions about the Lord and his response to our cries and our cares. But why is that? 
Why is it that we can all seem to be very aware and very confident and very sure of what's going on inside of us and even around us? But simultaneously, we can become very ignorant, even suspicious and skittish when it comes to knowing how God responds to our pain and our cries. Ignorant and skittish to knowing what is God's disposition and his posture towards us when we're at our weakest and lowest moments in life. And where does that often lead us? What happens when we who are outwardly professing to be Christians inwardly are skeptics at best, or maybe at worst, disillusioned and hard-hearted towards God? Well, it can lead us to be undone by our emotions, to be conflicted and tortured inside with thoughts that accuse us and won't leave us alone. And far too often when we begin believing our doubts towards what God really is like and what God is doing in our lives, we begin to question everything we once knew. We begin to question everything about our faith in God. Instead of drawing closer to the scriptures, we find ourselves drifting away from them little bit by little bit, further away from the truth we once claimed to know and love. But I think the main problem is this. Our starting place in the fight for faith is usually off somewhere along the way. Somewhere along the way, we find ourselves fighting for faith from the wrong starting blocks. In the fight for faith, we find ourselves trying to get out of a hole of despair with our focus on the wrong place. Like a runner trying to find the runner's block to find his or her footing before running a race, we can find ourselves trying to find our footing on very unstable and unreliable blocks. You see, the life of faith doesn't begin with how strong or how confident or even how sincere or how good we feel our relationship with God is going. It's actually the total opposite. It begins not by looking for assurance from within, It begins looking for assurance outside of ourselves to God. You see, the life of faith is really a bridge of faith. However, if the building of the bridge between us and God, if it starts with us, we're not going to finish the bridge. We're not going to finish the race. Life is too hard for the bridge to begin and end with us. Life is filled with enough setbacks and disappointments to wreck a weak and veneer faith that could be in any one of us, even right now, this morning. Left to ourselves, friends, we are just too weak and too wicked to finish such a daunting task. Left to ourselves, our faith truly would fail. That's why the starting point in the fight for faith always begins not with how we feel or how good or bad our circumstances have turned out for us. This bridge of faith, this life of faith, the soul of a person who finds refuge and comfort and gladness and confidence in life, it does not begin and end with us. It begins and ends with God. That means living the good life according to God's standard of goodness it will always begin with who God is 
and what he does. David came to an experiential knowledge of this priceless truth in his own life, and he pins Psalm 34 as a personal testimony to believers like us so that we too can experience the good life God intends to us to experience, the life that this good God created us to enjoy and experience with him. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 264. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can read. Uh, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 34. Look right there, starting in the heading of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. In the heading of this psalm, we find that this psalm was written by David in response or as a reflection to some degree. It is David looking back on a specific event that took place in David's life. The event is in reference to when David was fleeing from angry and jealous King Saul, and eventually the Philistines as well. And in his escape, he had pretended to be insane. He changed his behavior. He changed his overall sense of well-being before King Achish, the king of Gath, 
in order to disguise himself, in order to be seen as a madman, someone to be avoided, someone to be left alone rather than be taken in hostage for the enemies to kill him. David did this strange but strategic and shrewd acting all in order to flee, getting caught by those who intended only to do him harm. As an aside, Achish was probably the king's personal name, and Abimelech, the name mentioned in the heading, was his throne name, much like the pharaohs and Caesars are in the Bible. A basic point here, the same person in 1 Samuel 21, which is this passage is in reference to, uh, and the person mentioned in Psalm 34, it's two different names, but the same person. This account is found in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. And then it spills over somewhat into 1 Samuel 22. And in 1 Samuel 22, David finds himself hiding in the cave of Adullam, along with his family and many others who are running with him and hiding with him because they're distressed. They're scared. They're discouraged and they're in need of refuge and care like David. They were all now looking to David to lead them and guide them in that wilderness and into that cave in their time of fear and uncertainty and angst because David had seen the Lord protect and provide for him. David was particularly useful in the Lord's hands to be a blessing to others who were in need. Psalm 34 is therefore a psalm filled with praise and thanksgiving. It also contains a call to wise and holy living. And then it also contains an assurance and promises that God offers his people for their hope and joy in the midst of tumultuous times. Uh, to that end, this psalm will begin to draw out from each one of us questions we should be asking or questions that you might already be asking in your life. Questions like this, how do we respond to the Lord when life is going just as we want it to go? When life is swell, it's just going wonderful. How do we respond to the Lord? How do we respond to the Lord when life isn't going just as we want it to go? What assurance do we have that God truly has good plans for our lives? How do we know that? What is the assurance that that's true? And what assurance do we have that our future is secure with the Lord? no matter what comes our way. The psalm is broken up into three sections, and these sections help us see the goodness of God in David's life, as well as the goodness of God in the lives of all God's people, those who are in covenant with him, those like many of us this morning that know him in a real and personal way. If you're taking notes, I have three main points that serve as an outline for us. I'll say them a few times. In verses 1 to 10... David shows us, number one, individual praise and corporate worship is a fitting response to the goodness of God. Individual praise and corporate worship is a fitting response to the goodness of God. Second, in verses 11 to 14, David shows us, number two, discipling others in how to fear the Lord is a fitting response to the goodness of God. Discipling others in how to fear the Lord is a fitting response to the goodness of God. 
And thirdly, in verses 15 to 22, David shows us number three, the Lord is always good to his people in the best of times and in the worst of times. The Lord is always good to his people in the best of times and in the worst of times. Let's look at that first point together. Individual praise and corporate worship is a fitting response to the goodness of God. Look with me in verses 1 to 3. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Here we see David leading out. He's doing what should mark any true leader. He's taking the initiative. He's not needing to be manipulated, coerced, or guilted in declaring the passion of his heart. He's not waiting on others to beat him to the front of the line with what he knows is the right thing to do. What is the most fitting thing to do as a result of seeing and experiencing the goodness of God in his life? The psalm begins with the personal pronoun, I, speaking of David. He says in the first two verses, look with me, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Friends, David is first and foremost responding to who God is and what he has done for him in his life. And what did God do in his life, which this psalm is in reference to? Well, along with what we read back in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22, with David escaping from Saul and King Achish and making it to the cave with all the people following him, David here speaks in the third person in this psalm to give us a snapshot of how David viewed himself. A snapshot of what the Lord did for him at a very low and desperate time in his life. Look at verses 4 to 7 with me. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. Here's David speaking of himself in the third person. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. That unique reverence there in verse 7, the angel of the Lord. It's only mentioned a handful of times in the Psalms, but many other times in the Old Testament. It's another way of saying the Lord himself had encompassed. The Lord himself had surrounded and come alongside David and delivered him. The word angel can also mean messenger, messenger of Yahweh. And in several places, the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament. It is often in reference to powerful displays of God's commitment to defend his name and his people. Psalm 35 is the other place the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Psalms. And at other times, God, it's referring to God's ability to save and rescue his people and bring them into a good land. One key place the angel of the Lord is mentioned that you're probably more familiar with is in Exodus chapter Three. So turn with me to Exodus 3 just really quick. If you're kind of slow at doing it, you can just listen. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I just want you to see this. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 9. Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. We read, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, 
the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. You can turn back to Psalm 34. Here we see the angel of the Lord mentioned there in that very infamous passage of Exodus 3 in the burning bush. This unique manifestation is what many theologians call a theophany, a manifestation of God in a, in a way that humans could see something that is otherness than just another man. This unique manifestation of the presence of Yahweh in the angel of the Lord was to reveal to Moses that God was speaking to him. He was standing on holy ground because he was standing in the presence of God. Here God spoke to Moses and said he had heard the cries of his people. He had seen the afflictions of his people. He knew the sufferings they were bearing up and that he would rescue them and bring them to a good place. We hear in Psalm 34, 7, David is confidently declaring that his deliverance in his life, when his life was on the line, it did not come from mere accidental chance or even human might or human wisdom. He doesn't even give credit to himself for pretending to be insane and disguising himself to escape his enemy. He doesn't even give credit to his cleverness to his cunning strategies. No, David knows emphatically where his deliverance came from. It came from the angel of the Lord, the same angel that appeared to Moses in that burning bush. It was God himself. David says it came by the personal encampment, the personal encompassing, surrounding power of the angel of the Lord. It came by the providential hand of his good God. David did not credit his current lot in life as just happenstance. He did not chalk it up to the luck of the draw or having positive vibes or sheer positive thinking in life. No, David wouldn't have any of that. Friends, this personal and good God is the same good God from Genesis chapter 1 who created everything in the world and called it good 
This is the same personal and good God in the book of Exodus that saw the oppression and outcries of Israel and Egypt. This is the same personal good God that Jesus declared in the gospel of Matthew, that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the Father's will. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. According to Jesus, our father's eye is on an irrational, in the grand scheme of things, meaningless and easily forgettable bird, a sparrow, sitting on your window ledge, sitting in the tree, and gone in a moment. His eye is on sparrows. But then Jesus says, our Heavenly Father cares more about us who are made in his image and are born again by his Spirit and are adopted into his kingdom and family through faith in Christ. Friends, our Father cares about each one of his children intimately more and infinitely more than a mere bird. Brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we even ask. He knows our circumstances better than we know them. The details of our lives, the past, present, and future, they are all journaled and numbered by him. That's why Jesus says the number of your hairs on your head are all there. He knows. He knows every minute detail of our lives. Friends, his eye is not only on the bird. The point is the lesser to the greater. If he thinks and cares and feeds birds, how much more does he think about and care about children that eternally belong to him? Friends, when you think about that for a minute, I think we have these weird images in our head of a God sitting at a desk somewhere in the nosebleed section up in heaven and can sort of see some dots on earth. Well, there's Sheila. I think that's Sheila. Maybe, maybe it's Michelle. You know, yeah, as I see my people, they're just kind of like ants everywhere. We have these Ludicrous visions of God is very distant, very impersonal, very removed. He's just kind of a generalist of a God. Is that how you view God's gaze of you? Friends, he's not a boss up in the nosebleed. He's as near to us as a mom and dad holding their baby child in their arms. When you see a mom or dad hold that child, the whole world fades away and their eye is on the one they're holding. Friends, our Father's love is greater than that. You see, this, this God, he loves his children more than anyone else will ever love you and I, ever. And friends, this is the God David adored in Psalm 34. This is the same personal and good God that we worship today, that we've been singing to this morning, that we've been thinking about and talking about and hearing his word read to us. 
This is the same God who stretched out his mighty hand to draw us to himself in love. This is the good God that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give us life in his name, to give us abundant life, the truly good life that we were created to live. This is the God that did not spare his own son, but he gave heaven's best for earth's worst. He gave up his son for all of us who would recognize our sin as exceedingly sinful against this perfectly good God. And if we believe that our sin was laid on Jesus at the cross, we receive his righteousness, his perfect life and obedience in return to our account. And that righteousness is what makes us right in God's eyes. His spirit comes to live in us to make us more righteous like his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, David had a testimony because he knew how weak, how destitute, how wayward, how fearful, how fickle, how anxious, how helpless, how sinful, how wretched, and how spiritually impoverished he really was left all to himself. Friends, it's only when we come to the end of ourselves do we actually begin to see God accurately. It's only when we become emptied of self-preservation and self-salvation do we begin to see ourselves as poor men and women before a good, holy, and generous God. Friends, the only way you and I can even begin to experience something of the goodness of God in our hearts is we have to be humbled to recognize God is all we have. To my non-Christian friend, the only thing that stands between you and God today is yourself. It's you. It's your self-righteousness, trying to make yourself right in your, in your own eyes before God. It's your self-preservation, as we've all done and still are tempted to do. Friends, it's when we recognize we have sinned against a perfectly good God who's only been good to us. It's when we realize that we are poor of any goodness that we can offer up to God. And he promises us to save us from our greatest fear, which is death and eternal punishment under God's wrath forever. Friend, cry out to God to save you, like David did. Recognize himself as a poor man who cried out to the Lord. Maybe today the cry you need to utter is that I can't save myself. I need you to save me. I can't clean up my life. I can't erase the records. I can't go back in time. I can't recover those relationships. I can't undo what I've done. That's exactly where you need to be. You give up. You give up trying to save yourself. You have to realize you're at the bottom of the ocean floor. You're not kicking and screaming. You're dead as a doorknob, and you need to be brought up from the ground up, and only God can do that. Friends, that is the good news, that God saves poor, wretched, weak, backwards people, and he does it to show off his mercy. Friends, this is what David does. He's recounting his testimony. That's what he's doing in Psalm 34. He's telling the people. It's just like a showcase. I want to show you people. I'm not 
just a mere king. I'm way worse than that. I'm a poor man. David says, I'm going to respond to the goodness of God in my life. And what does David do? Well, he blesses the Lord. He praises the Lord. David contemplates, meditates, reflects, and then he responds to this good God and what this good God has done for him. That means David doesn't just experience a good thing in his life and then just keep on with life. He doesn't just say, well, that was a neat coincidence. How many of us have said that before? Oh, man, I got lucky. No, David's not agnostic in giving credit where credit is due. David's not narcissistic in giving credit to himself. No, it's the Lord he's blessing. His praise is on David's mouth. David knew that he did not get where he's at today by accident. Imagine walking into a field all by yourself. No buildings, no barns, no streets, no cars. You're walking out in the middle of a field and you see a random fence that stretches about 100 yards long. As you walk closer to the fence, you see there's an object on this fence post. The fence post is about 10 feet high. You get closer and closer and you notice it's a turtle just sitting there. What question is crossing your mind right now? Not who built this weird fence. The question you're asking is how did this turtle get here? This turtle didn't get here on his own. This turtle had to be put here by someone much stronger and much bigger than himself. Friends, where you and I are at today is not by accident. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, how did that happen? Where did you get where you're at today? The job you have, the family you have, the health you have? It's because the Lord put you there. And the Lord ordered your steps. And that's what it looks like to boast in the Lord. Look at verse 2. David says he made his soul to boast in the Lord. David's not boasting in himself. He's not passing around his I'm amazing resume. He's not tooting his own horn. He's not patting himself on the back. He's not beating his chest, singing his praises, and robbing God of the glory. No, David is truly God-centered and not man-centered. Friends, this past week, did you and I spend more time talking about ourselves or about the Lord? This past week, did you and I spend more time talking about ourselves or about the Lord? Did you and I spend more time fishing for compliments from others or turning conversations into ways we can keep people's focus on Jesus? Friends, pride and self-glorification and self-centeredness rears its ugly head in every one of us. Prideful people have lots to say about themselves, but very little to say about the Lord. Prideful people tend to compare themselves with others in order to make themselves feel better about themselves. Prideful churches have lots to say about their traditions, their money, and their man-made metrics to gauge what they believe a successful church is. Prideful churches will be bored with the gospel. Prideful churches will be disinterested when it comes to serving in the local church. Prideful churches will be particularly disinterested in serving if it's an inconvenience or hard for them. 
But Christians and churches who have been truly humbled by the goodness of God in their life will look very different than that. They will gladly serve in the church as long as they're needed and in whatever ways they are needed. Humble Christians and humble churches will sing songs gladly about how great and glorious and merciful and loving and good God is. They will gladly listen to full, meaty, rich, lengthy, gospel-filled sermons that exalt the name of the Lord. And humble churches will be quick to acknowledge who it is that is really building their church. Who is providing for their needs? Who is saving the lost? Who is raising up leaders? Who is sending more laborers? Who is causing them to persevere? Who is leading them in wisdom one decision, one week, one year at a time? Beloved, we plant and we water, but God gives the increase. CCBC, pray that the Lord keeps us humble, keeps us holy, and keeps us happy in Jesus. Pray that each one of us cultivate in our lives a humble and needy hunger to hear from our God and be changed by what we hear. May we all pray in unity of mind and heart. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. And as he speaks and as he works in and through and around our lives, each of us individually should reflect. We should take time to remember. We should bring it up as testimonies of his goodness in our lives and lead us to praise back to him. But notice how David's leading out in this psalm. It's not as if he's singing a song in the shower or in the car all by himself, which if you do those things, that's fine. I do that too. This isn't David's version of singing a Whitney Houston ballad, some kind of solo where he drowns out the world around him and says, look at me, I've got some things to sing. No, he does speak individually from his own heart. Yes, that's true. But notice his praising and blessing and boasting in the Lord is meant to inspire others to do the same. David's boasting in that sense is not the unique anomaly of one zealous Christian in the church, but it is to be the norm amongst God's people in the church. Look at what David does back in verses 2 to 3. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Then drop down to verses 8 to 10. He continues. Verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good Thing. Do you see what David's doing? He's led the charge, he's recounted his testimony, and now he's inviting the congregation of the redeemed to participate in magnifying the Lord together. That word magnify means to make large. An easy way to remember this, to magnify God is to make a big deal about our big God. And there to exalt in verse 3 means to raise up or lift up. It means to raise our voices in order to draw all our attention 
to the Lord. David here is aiming to inspire and ignite a corporate declaration, a rallying battle cry, and a church-wide celebration of making a big deal about a really good and big God. Friends, that's what we should be doing every Lord's Day. Every time we gather as the church, we should be zealous, humble, united, and it's a corporate declaration of making a big deal about a big God. Friends, we have something to celebrate. We have a God that really is vastly bigger than the entire universe. Of all people, we have something to sing about. As Bob Coughlin says regarding corporate worship among Christians, he says this, quote, the first priority of our time together is to magnify the Lord. We should want to help people remember that God is bigger than their problems and joys, greater than their sorrows and successes, more significant than their tests and triumphs. Because we lose perspective so easily, God needs to become bigger in our eyes. He never changes in size. It just seems that way. It's like looking up at the stars. To the naked eye, they appear like tiny pinpoints of light, barely visible against the black backdrop, twinkling dots suspended in vast darkness. We can walk outside and barely notice them. But when we look through a high-powered telescope, we're awestruck by what they really are. Massive spheres of raging fire, millions of times larger than Earth, brighter than our human eyes can bear. The stars haven't changed. Our vision has. Our great privilege is to help people see through the eyes of faith how great God has actually revealed himself to be. He doesn't change. We do. That's why it is so crucial to sit under the preaching of God's word and to sing the praises amongst God's people because our vision of God gets so puny and tiny. And the God we serve spoke everything you and I see into existence like that. That's a big God. And that's what David does here in Psalm 34. He's calling on the people of Israel. He's calling on us at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church to magnify, to expand our vision and exalt his name together. And then he says in verses 9 and 10, he calls us to seek the Lord, as Brad rightly did multiple times in his opening remarks, to seek the Lord and be confident that as we fear him and put him first in our life, we will not lack anything we need to do his will. We will not lack anything that our good heavenly father, who is wiser than we could ever imagine, has ordained that we need for every single moment of our life. And he does all this, friends. David is rounding it up and he's saying, listen, here is the goal of what I've been trying to do in this psalm. As I've been modeling by example, I've been recounting my testimony. He says there in verse 8, look with me in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's say that together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is an invitation far better than any banquet or meal you and I could prepare for those we love. 
David says, I want you to taste and see that this God is good. What does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? What does that mean? It means to take God at his word and devour his word like food and live upon that word as the very sustenance of our lives. It means to cry out to God at your weakest moments and keep crying out to God. Keep seeking this God and wait on him to give you more of himself and to give you whatever else he believes you and I need. Friends, we get all caught up with things all the time that are captivating our hearts. We lose our keys. We can't leave until we find the keys. Not the cheese, Baxter. The keys. If you can name that movie, tell me at the door. Anyway. I can't leave and I'm a wallet. Or house hunting. I've seen people stay up all night, got to look for the best house, the best deal. Car hunting. They're just doing research all the time. It consumes them. Friends, that's the image here. David says something far more important and far more beneficial and far more life-giving is to seek the Lord. We are not to look at our relationship with God as some distant picture sitting on the shelf in our living room. Our lives are to be constantly in pursuit of knowing this God and knowing what he is like and enjoying him in his goodness towards us. What is it that we declared earlier as a church? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. David knew what we all should be reminded of each week. And friends, that's why it takes the corporate praises of God's people to truly magnify the Lord as he is to be magnified. What does that mean for us? In order for us to do that well at CCBC, We have to be involved in one another's lives. We have to know what's going on. Being willing to share with what's going on in one another's lives, being willing to listen, being willing to learn from one another's testimonies in order to benefit and grow in our faith together. David took time to share his testimony with the people of Israel and with us. Well, how do we do that here? Well, in our Sunday night services, I've recently carved out a slot of get to know a member. That's one way for us to learn about what the Lord's doing in someone's life, how to pray for them, how to rejoice with them, how to weep with them. In our times of fellowship in our homes and over lunches and coffees, we can carve out time every time we hang out and just go around and say, hey, what's the Lord been teaching you lately? Share answers to prayer. Rejoice together. Even sing together in the home. And throughout the year, the elders solicit prayer requests through email to all the members of the church. And we do that for multiple reasons. And one of those reasons is to hear about the stories of God working in your life. One of the ways the joy of your pastors will increase is letting us hear what God's doing in your life. Did you know that? So don't, don't not respond back. Please email us back the hard things and the sweet things. Your joy 
increases our joy. You can also read Christian biographies, read church history of both long time ago and more recent, of saints who've gone before us that have left writing for us and books talking about God's goodness in their life. A membership interviews for me is an edifying time where I get to hear someone applying for membership here of how they came to know the Lord. They're sharing their testimony with me. And then lastly, friends, we can just show up to church on Sundays, being attentive and engaged to sing God's praises together. Friends, even when our hearts are dull or as our minds are distracted, God has a way of reviving our hearts through singing praises together. And he does it in surprising ways. CCBC, may we continue to magnify the Lord and exalt his name together. Individual praise and corporate worship was one fitting way David responded to the goodness of God in his life. But second, look at verses 11 to 14. We're going to see how discipling others and how to fear the Lord is a fitting response to the goodness of God. In verses 11 to 14, guess what? David leads out again. He takes the initiative, like any good leader would do. He calls others to listen to me. I have something to teach you. I have something to instruct you. But David's not just saying, let's exalt his name together, but let's learn together. Let's sit under sound teaching in order to learn how to fear the Lord with the life God has given us. And David does this by appealing to the common longings of the human heart. Happiness. You can go up to any human being anytime you want today. Just stop them. Do you want to be happy in life? It doesn't even matter what the religious background is. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. Chances are, 99.9% of the time, they're going to say, absolutely. Why do you ask? Well, that's what David does. He appeals to the natural desire for human beings to live a good life, a full life, and a happy one. Notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. Come, O children, listen to me. In other words, David has something important to say. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In other words, the fear of the Lord is not natural for us. We need to be instructed and taught what it means. Look at verse 12. He raises the question, what man is there who desires life? It's a rhetorical question. All men. And loves many days that he may see good. And what does David say? What does David communicate in teaching them and us about the fear of the Lord? He basically summarizes it in two ways. If we want to fear the Lord and live the good life God intends for his people, we should do two things according to this text, aside from all the things we've mentioned in the sermon. Number one, do away with sinful speech that God condemns. Do away with sinful speech that God condemns. Number two, be a blessing to others and leave the results to God. Be a blessing to others and leave the results to God. Look at me, verses 13 and 14. Notice what he says. Keep your tongue from evil. 
Evil just means bad, worthless, rotten, sinful, corrupt. And your lips from speaking deceit, guile, lying, defrauding, bearing false testimony. Verse 14, turn away from evil. There's repentance. And do good. There's obedience. Seek peace and pursue it. There's the good life. Peace with God and peace with others. One theologian by the name of William Plummer once cataloged virtually every form of sinful speech mentioned in the Bible, either explicitly or implicitly, and put them down in a list. It's a longer list, so bear with me. But I can tell you, it has been gut-richingly convicting. And I'm going to have to just like sit and think about this for a couple of weeks because it has just been eye-opening. And again, this is more 19th century language, so some of it you're like, huh? Write down the word, look it up later. But as you listen to this, ask the Lord to search your heart if your speech and my speech has been characterized by any of these things recently. Here's what he says. Speaking becomes sinful when it is hasty, rash, continual, unseasonable, excessive, clamorous, senseless, unchaste, indelicate impure, filthy, prevaricating, quibbling, deceitful, lying, slanderous, tattling, babbling, backbiting, detractive, reproachful, Approbrios, brios, approbrios, you can ask me later. Flattering, seductive. Listen to the next few. Betraying confidence, revealing secrets. Listen to this one. Awakening groundless suspicions. Tailbearing, news carrying, that just means gossip, railing, reviling, boastful, scornful, murmuring, desperate, foolish, egotistical, vain, proud, malignant, bitter, Resentful, cursing, profane, or blasphemous. He goes on to say, the tongue is a world of iniquity, quoting James. 
Sins of the tongue lead to horrors of conscience, loss of peace of mind and loss of appetite, to broils, quarrels, and bitter contentions, to fightings, stabbings, shootings, and murders. Perhaps no form of sin more terribly destroys personal, domestic, social, and public peace and prosperity. The tongue is a fire. It burns all who abuse it. It burns them up. Friends, we, can, we cannot avoid all problems and all troubles that come into our lives. But our speech can bring a lot of troubles into our lives more than they should. In other words, if our speech was used more in our lives to build up one another, to bless one another, be seasoned with salt, to give wisdom and encouragement and instruction, to honor and praise the Lord. Friends, we might be experiencing more of the good life right now that God actually intends for his people. Listen to a few of these Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Interestingly, as Michael read earlier from 1 Peter 3, this is exactly what Peter quotes in that passage. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may attain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Friends, Peter here is talking to Christians who are facing slander and persecution and hate speech thrown their way because of their walks with Jesus. And yet Peter says we should turn every opportunity, not to mudsling or revile in return, but to use our sufferings as platform for evangelism and blessing others. Friends, we need supernatural strength to do that. God has so ordered our lives to put us in situations with people who have hateful, sinful speech, not that we might learn from them, that we might give them a taste of the good life, a life that is controlled by this good God, and it comes out of our mouths. Friends, if you're anything like me, hearing those lists of sinful speech patterns, I know that not all, but quite a few troubles in my life are a result of what I've brought into it. Things I've said to my family, things I've said at different times in the heat of the moment when I'm frustrated. I have burned down some houses. I have burned down some relationships. I have had some wear and tear on people in my life because of my speech. And friends, that's why God's word is warning us. Our speech can build up or it can tear down. It can give life or it can bring death. Friends, if you're tempted to use your speech in sinful ways, ask others to pray for you. Meditate on some of the text in this psalm. I pray that God would make us a vessel of blessing to others. Those who are richly blessed by God should richly bless others for their good.
discipling others and how to fear the Lord is a fitting response to the goodness of God. And lastly, look at verses 15 to 22. David's going to show us the Lord is always good to his people in the best of times and in the worst of times. Look with me starting in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In the first half of Psalm 34, David is the one leading the charge. He's taking the initiative in praising God and instructing people on what it means to fear the Lord most acutely with how we use our speech and pursue peace as far as it depends on us. But in verses 15 to 22, David gets our attention where it needs to be all the time. It's the Lord in this next section who is the proper concentration of where our eyes need to be. It's the Lord who is with his people. It's the Lord who is for his people. It's the Lord who draws near to his people, both in the good times and in the bad times. David uses what theologians have called anthropomorphic language. That just means human-like terms to describe attributes or characteristics of God. For example, look in verse 15. Your kids may ask you this at some point, so you can throw out a fancy word, anthropomorphic, or you can say, well, it's just, it's just language that God's used to condescend to our level because we're teeny tiny and we need every bit of help we can to figure out what God's like, okay? Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry, okay? God doesn't have eyes. God is spirit, doesn't have a body. God doesn't have ears like us. They get bigger as they get older, you know, they, they don't work as good. Well, God doesn't have that, okay? He doesn't need to go see Stephanie at the eye doctor. just doesn't need to do that. These verses are communicating something in human terms for the hope of our hearts. These verses are communicating loud and clear that God is not blind to our pain and suffering. God is not deaf or annoyed when we cry out to him for help. God sees and God hears without interruption and without irritation. And he cares. He cares because he loves the righteous. He loves the redeemed. He loves his saints more than anyone will ever love us for all eternity. Fellow Christian, you just need to be reminded of a simple truth that we've sung all morning. In Christ, God loves you. And he loves you with a love that you and I will never be able to fully fathom. God's love is like an ocean we sang this morning. It's like taking a little kid's cup and going, how much do you love me, Lord? And the little kid goes up to the ocean, takes up a little cup. He says, do you love me this much? He says, no, keep going back to the ocean. 
As he gets older, he gets a bigger bucket. And he says, do you love me this much, Lord? He says, no, get a bigger bucket. Keep coming and keep coming. You get a dump truck. You get a water tower. No, just keep coming. Keep coming. I've got more water. Friends, that's where God's love is boundless for his people. He tells us to come, to draw from that well, to taste and see that he's good. But Psalm 34 is also a very difficult psalm for some to read and accept because we often fully don't grasp how God could love us and at the same time allow very painful suffering in our life. You know, the question that atheists, agnostics, and I think curious Christians and really well-read theologians have been asking for many years, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world? There is no satisfying answer you will ever hear. I can give you books this thick and you won't be satisfied with the answer. I could expound for three sermons and you still wouldn't be satisfied. So then what will satisfy that answer? If God is good, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? If God is good, why does he allow me to suffer as I do, as you do? I mean, the Psalm's honest, right? David's talked about fears, troubles, afflictions, cries for help. Christian apologist John Lennox once said this about God's goodness and the presence of evil in the world. Notice what he says. This life is full of beauty and bombshells. This life is full of beauty and barbed wire. It's both. And that's just the hard, plain facts. Christians should not shy away from that hard, hard question because the Bible doesn't. In fact, that's why the cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing that makes any sense of God's goodness towards humanity when discussing suffering in the world. The God-man hung on a shameful cross for sins he didn't commit. He drew near to humanity, not as in the bleacher seats or the nosebleed section. He left glory and put on human flesh. He walked among us. He became a man. He faced suffering he did not deserve. And he did all that to show how heinous sin is, but also how good and loving and merciful and sympathetic and compassionate God is. And yet, no matter what we face in this life, because Christ was forsaken at the cross under the wrath of God for us, access to God's intimate presence and care is available to us. Friends, did you see there in verse 18? I don't even need to expound very much on this. Maybe you showed up to church this morning and you're just looking for one thing to hold on to. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Friends, the Lord draws near when we think we are the least worthy of his mercy. He is more near to us when we feel God should have nothing to do with us. He is near, not away. He is near 
not aloof. He is near, not distant and removed. He is near, close, and camping around those who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Namely, those who are crushed by their own sin, by their own rebellion, and are looking to God for mercy. Friends, in verse 20, we see a very unique verse where David goes so far as to say he keeps, or that word can mean protects all my bones, and not one of them is broken. That's very strange and unique. David's speaking as if God will protect his very body from suffering in ways that God would not allow him to suffer. He will keep, he will preserve all his bones. But verse 20 is also quoted in the Old Testament much earlier. And it's again quoted in the New Testament much later. Where is it quoted? It's quoted in Exodus 12, 46, and Numbers 9, verse 12, speaking of the Passover lamb that would be killed at twilight, but its bones could not be broken. No bone of the sacrificial animal could be broken because, among other reasons, it was a symbol of the unity of the worshiping family and of the entire covenantal community of Israel. Yet in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, this verse from Psalm 34 is referenced about Jesus, our Passover lamb, when they were taking his body down from the cross. We read in John 19, starting in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Verse 36, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Friends, Psalm 34, the shadow of it was David. The fulfillment of it was Jesus. The Father's eye was on the Son, and he preserved how he would even die down to the very last second after he died that no one could break his bones like they did the criminals. For in Psalm 34, though graphic, though hard to swallow and hard to imagine, it is God's promise to his people that not one person, not one tragedy, not one disaster, nothing can touch your life unless the loving and good hands of God in his wisdom that I cannot fathom allows it to be sifted through his hand. You see, friends, the wicked don't have that hope. All things do not work together for good to those who don't love God. It's only to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The wicked, Psalm 34 says, who hate the righteous, they will be condemned. It says in verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But in Christ, we are redeemed. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. There is no more condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 22 says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Friends, Psalm 34 is not being bashful that God is good and suffering will happen to us in this life. There's beauty and there's bombshells. There's beauty and there's barbed wire. So you might be here today and going, okay, Blake, I'm looking at what David did. He cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He says that about two or three times. So are you saying if I ask God to fill in the blank, will he answer my request? He may. Just like he did for David. But if he doesn't, he's still good. If he doesn't, he's still good. The Lord is always good to his people in the best of times and in the worst of times. And he's proven that by giving us heaven's best for earth's worst. He's given us his son who is keeping us, who loves us, and the Father's eye is on his children. Friends, we have the great privilege to magnify the Lord with the Lord's people, to seek the Lord and taste and see that he is good. Friends, we are called to cry out to the Lord, especially if we're brokenhearted. He is near. William Plummer again once said this sweet way to view beauty and bombshells when God doesn't remove the bombshells or the barbed wire from us in this life. Notice what he says. Among all the redeemed in glory, there is not one who looks back and see that on earth there was any mistake in the divine conduct towards him. God doeth all things well. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we praise you. Lord, we are reminded that David, in his times of need, still learn to cry out to you and bless you at all times. Lord, we can bless you at all times because you are good to us at all times. Father, we do pray for those who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, that they would trust that you are near. We pray that each one of us would grow in what it means to know your love and your goodness to us. Lord, cause each one of us, even now, to experience more and more of what it means to walk with you to love you, and to live the good life you've created us to live. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.